Well, hey, 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 guys. Welcome back to the Bleeding Grave podcast. Here we are, episode six. Hannah, it's been a while. Been a, It's been quite a while, actually, yeah, since we recorded. Yeah, it's been a few extra days. Yeah, we're usually recording on a Monday, but today is, uh, is Wednesday, mm-hmm. hump day for others i don't know where i'm going with that but anyways yeah we um i had busy week austin was sick earlier this week yeah i wasn't feeling wasn't feeling too good but you know at the same time it's nice to have the flexibility to just record whenever yeah absolutely i mean we got busy lives and it's not always gonna happen on monday yeah absolutely as much as we want to be on Monday, but you know. But that's the nice thing. The reason we record on Monday is because it gives me a full week to edit that's and everything. That's very true. Till so, we get our whole team of editors. Yeah, and my schedule, oh, my schedule is changing um, because I have changed jobs, uh, which is okay. I'm really happy with the current schedule, but it will actually free up currently more time for me to do this, and even after work, potentially have the mental capacity to edit and everything. So absolutely, just gives you i feel like it'll be less pressure on you yeah as well less Having stress the, the very like consistent daily schedule and everything will be yeah really nice be very nice for you plus working in a place where i'm very confident in what i'm doing and, and in my job that too very absolutely. very helpful so absolutely uh, well, how are you how are you feeling i mean i'm feeling a lot better than i was monday and tuesday it's kind of feeling pretty nauseous but you know you not- pregnant I mean, I might with a burrito baby, but other than that, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of just came on, and I was like, oh, not feeling too good. Didn't want to record while I was feel- wasn't feeling too good. No, that's fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I'm feeling great now. It's Wednesday. It's a great day. Uh, it's windy as hell outside. It's windy, and it's it's cold. Chilly. It's, it's real. Ch- it's it's not like it's not cold. It's bone chilling cold. Mm-hmm. You f- literally feel it in your bones. Mm-hmm. It like smacks you when you open the door. Smack. But so I was uh, so little rewind here. I was l- listening back to some of the episodes. You know what I realized we didn't do what? We didn't do a shout out to Mitch for the uh, podcast logo. Oh my god! It's six episodes, Hannah. We haven't said anything except for the first post on instagram and i feel terrible about oh it. oh my god yes so mitch, we're so sorry mitch buddy it's po- our apologies we share one brain cell we half brain cell so those of you who don't know what we're talking about mitch is a tattoo uh, my tattoo artist actually and he was the one who created the logo that you see every time you click on our Instagram, our Facebook, Twitter, that's Mitch Goggins at, he actually opened up his own tattoo shop. It's called oh, nice. Duluth Tattoo Co. Right right in Duluth. Mm-hmm. Beautiful shop. I'm actually going there in late June because I actually set up a tattoo appointment with them again. Heck yeah. And I'm super excited. And Mitch is just like, go check out his page on Instagram Absolutely. at his- uh, Minnesota Mitch Tattoo, I believe it is. I believe that's it. His um, artwork is amazing. He's very... Let's, let's see. I've definitely been trying to interact with yeah. his stuff with the podcast account a lot. Right. Uh, yeah, it is Minnesota Mitch Tattoo on Instagram. Go follow him. Hit him up for any tattoo needs. He's really good with the traditional. I I always love traditional artwork. Mm-hmm. But his traditional, the, what, the way he does it, there's something about it. 
I can't quite describe it, but you know, a picture's just, worth a thousand words. He's just really got it down. He's got he's got his own style, American traditional thing going on. Mm-hmm. But it's very clean. It's very clean. Like his he. I could honestly, I could go on and on about Mitch. So, Mitch, if you're listening, just know that you have true fans for life here, and I'm hoping to 100%. get Hannah. I, am, I hope to get Hannah up to your shop. I'm sometime. hoping to come for a dagger tattoo. Ooh, I really want a dagger. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Another thing I wanted to announce that our website is a hundred percent up and running. Ooh. So you can find us at thebleedinggrave.com, and when you're on there, you can find our link tree. And you can also find the most recent episode right on our homepage as well. Are you looking it up? I am, yeah. I'm looking <laughs> at it right now. So there are some improvements that will be need to be made. We're going to get a host page up. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to work on probably an episode page so that mm-hmm. you can look up specifically what's going on in each episode. Absolutely. All all things that we are going to put in, little little categories and subcategories that... It'll make it more interactive. But right now, you can get to the, the meat of everything. That, uh, yeah, you can get to the link tree. You can listen to the episodes. Get through social media. Yep. Yeah. Just a tiny little about at the bottom. It's good stuff. This looks awesome. Thank you, Austin. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty happy with that. And I spent I spent quite a bit of time on it. But I know that I, I wanted to get it out there because I actually had a lot of coworkers say, hey, I don't have Spotify. I really don't. Like yeah, YouTube, which is exactly why I wanted to mm-hmm. do it that way. I wanted yeah. there, I wanted the podcast to be accessible well, yeah. to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And we are working on getting on more platforms. There are some platforms that will probably be a while before we're on, but we're slowly getting there. I say we got a good base right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, you can listen to us in multiple places. I do want to say um, SoundCloud. We don't have past episode four on there as of right now just due to having to pay to upload more currently so as soon as i didn't know that we had to pay yeah i didn't know that either until i uploaded episode four and they're like 100 percent of your free downloads have been used or uploads have been used motherfuckers yeah so um just you know until we get around to having the extra income and everything to be able to pay that we is broke yeah so but like we said it's very accessible you can listen on the website all of that good stuff you Not that we have fo- many people listening on SoundCloud. We don't. But but you can also subscribe to our Patreon to give us the monies. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of Patreon, I definitely didn't get Tangent Tuesday out last week because I have been busy for well over a week and just catching my breath now. So I will get Tangent Tuesday out this coming Tuesday, which when this episode comes out will be tomorrow. You know what, Hannah? I'm going to elect that you again go first this week. Oh. Just the way my story is, I think it would be best to me for me to go second this week oh, again. Okay, I was I'll gonna make... say you make the call on flipping the coin. Oh, you were gonna let me call yeah, it? Yeah, I was. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so, but if you want me to go first, this, yes, um, it's I... not a terribly long story. Okay, um, perfect. Because I, I just want yeah, my stories. Pages of notes. So my story is pretty. It's lengthy. There's there's a lot of information okay. in it. So, but I also feel it would be best to be second. Okay. So, with that being said, Hannah, take us away. 
In October of 1903, the residents of a small town in Iowa started spotting strange new visitors. Over the course of a week, there were several sightings and reports until residents decided these visitors were officially unwelcome. They eventually became known as the Van Meter Visitors. All right. So, a paranormal researcher named Chad Lewis, who is from Minneapolis, dubbed these creatures the Van Meter Visitors. About a hundred years after the original events occurred, he went and he spent a night outside the old coal mine that the creatures were said to have lived in. He survived the night and got a great story from the locals. He's also one of the co-authors of a book, The Van Meter Visitor, A True and Mysterious Encounter with the Unknown. Also, they have a book too. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I'm putting that one down. He purposely chose a neutral name as the creatures didn't seem like they meant any harm and no one was actually hurt in these events. Oh. Okay, so it's more just getting scared shitless? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Over several nights in 1903, multiple prominent members of Van Meter's community saw a creature they'd never seen before. Did I say what state this is in? No, you did say the man was from Minneapolis. He was from Minneapolis. Yeah, it's, a, it's in Iowa. Okay. Okay, quickly, do you know what Iowa stands for? Idiots out walking around. Be nice. We want the people in the Midwest to listen to us. They make fun of us. Yeah, but I mean, look at us. <laughs> at least we're Listen not, to our accent. At least we're not Wisconsin. That's true. <laughs> Over several nights in 1903 in Van Meter, Iowa, multiple prominent members of the community saw a creature they'd never seen before. It was described as being a tall half-animal and half-human creature, maybe eight feet or so. It had bat-like wings, a powerful order, and a horn on its head that produced a beam of light. Its head was shaped kind of like a beaked skull. When you look at the pictures, it but absolutely it, looks like a pterodactyl with a flashlight on its head, which is, <laughs> yes, what M said, and then that's why we drink. But they were right. It's what it looks like. You're looking it up right now. What the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? It looks like a Pokemon that they got lazy with. It's a, it looks like it. It does look like a pterodactyl, a pterodactyl with, with a, a flashlight, flashlight on its head. head. <laughs> or a laser pointer. Mm-hmm. Yo, this pterodactyl likes cats. Get the laser pointer and everything. So the first sighting was the local implement dealer. And I saw two different sources on what his name was. Either the initials UG or the name Eugene Griffith. Oh, okay. Um, And an implement dealer is a farm supplier with like tractors, stuff like that. I was about to ask, what is an implement dealer? I think if you remember (laughs) when I was doing the research, I had asked you, I was like, what's an implement dealer? Because that sounds illegal. Kind of (laughs) does. Sounds like somebody going to the dark Or maybe I'm just dumb, but... No, I've never heard of like somebody like that. Like I always just thought it was farm supply, mm-hmm. tractor supply, you know? Yeah. So Mr. Griffith shot at the creature as it flew across rooftops, but said it didn't seem phased. Like he actually hit it or it wasn't phased by the sound of the gun? I'm not sure. Both? Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know. It just, it seemed like it was just going about doing its thing. It's doing its thing and didn't care that it was getting shot at. Just doing its visiting. It's visiting. It's van metering visiting. Yeah, it's van van metering visiting. The following evening, there were multiple sightings. The town doctor was awoken by the creature making a sound and ran outside with his gun to chase what he thought was a robber. The same night, the town banker, Peter Dunn, was also awoken by noise and he shot out the front of the bank from the inside. He was sleeping in the bank. Don't know why. It was okay. But he was sleeping in the bank. <laughs> huh? He waited until morning to check outside, but when he did, there was nothing there but three-toed tracks, which he took plaster casts of. Oh. But as far as I can tell, nobody knows where these casts are. 
Yeah, I made some casts. Some sources say that another person saw the creature climbing down a telephone pole after being shot at. The resident said then it flew out of town towards the old coal mines. And I'm not sure if this was the same night or not, but... The next night, the hardware store owner woke up from a strange sound and found a creature on top of a telephone pole. He shot at it, and he said it just shone its light on him and sprayed the air with a strange odor. Why does this sound like some Scooby-Doo shit? I don't know. (laughs) He said he didn't remember anything else from the night after that. Of course. Of course, because why? Yeah. Why? It must be the odor. It's gotta be the odor. The town eventually assembled a group of men to go to the town mine where the creature was rumored to live and, quote-unquote, take care of it. Did they have pitchforks and torches? Basically. Okay. (laughs) They went to the town mine in the evening before the creature left its home for the night and watched it leave. They waited all night until it returned. Some sources say that it either came back with another smaller and identical creature or the smaller creature came out of the mine when the other one returned. When the mob opened fire on them, the creatures returned down the mine and they were never seen again. Just like that. And years later, the mine was sealed up. Just like that. Just like that. Okay. So this is still debated by some, or just found curious? Yeah. So I think how it went down is still debated by some people, and just all of it in general. Otherwise, some people just... Like, everyone's account is different of what they saw? No, I think just the idea of the Van Meter visitors, the story as a whole, Uh it's still debated by people whether it's true or not. Okay. And some people, like me, just find it really curious and interesting i mean that's fascinating i mean if it's true i mean if they a creature sound like, cute as heck i mean i love dinosaurs till it's got you in its claw back to he the... didn't hurt anybody he was just visiting just poking oh, around true just checking out the yeah. things okay some people claim they've still seen strange things in the area that didn't really elaborate but just weird spoopy things a lot of people believe that the visitors died in the coal mine before or after it got sealed up what do we think either okay well i guess i mean they died before it doesn't really matter that they sealed it up if Mm -hmm. they sealed it up they died yeah or they were they used those mines and they found another way out and they found some other place to live because humans are terrible yeah i mean honestly but i guess i might have the same reaction if i saw something big giant flying around oh yeah i'd be absolutely terrified but that's besides the point i am maybe not in a shooting a gun at cozy home talking about the spoopy thing so i'm fine yeah, we're both fine we're it's both okay. fine um there's a few theories about what these creatures are extraterrestrial or extra dimensional beings Ooh. dinosaurs obviously obviously flaws in eyewitness memory uh, yeah <laughs> i yeah yeah or our favorite not our favorite just a hoax hoaxes man okay but guess what what every fall in town in van meter there's a festival in honor of the van meter visitors and their lore every fall every fall we have to go oh absolutely we have to go we had to take a weekend this is just in iowa right yeah it's just in iowa this is easily a day trip if we really wanted it to be but a weekend absolutely we can we can get that done we'll do that we'll make a we'll make a whole episode on that oh absolutely so so that's the van meter visitors <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard of the Van Meter visitors before. I know. That is, I mean, like, 
I heard a lot of a, a lot of different cryptids, but this is a first. A dinosaur. Aren't they so cool? I love them so much. But didn't you say that they were half animal, half human? They were kind of described as being like half animal, half human. I think that's because of the general kind of shape of the body. Like to some, if you're not getting a good glimpse of it, it could look like it's just on two like normal legs. Okay. Because I was looking at the like the illustrations that they had and it all just looked like a pterodactyl with a flashlight on his head or a pterodactyl with A a a horn or a laser coming out of its head. Yep. But I did see the beak, and it does look like it almost looks like a, a skeleton mm-hmm. kind of it's, pterodactyl. It's spooky. It's, I mean, yeah, I'd probably should have bricked too if I saw it. Like, And honestly, with that idea of it being like an extraterrestrial or interdimensional, like it looks like something that just fell through a wormhole and ended up here. I, exactly. But so Or a portal, just whatever. So when you were uh, when you were describing it. And I thought of Scooby, how I thought of the Scooby-Doo thing was like, okay, so this is a man in a costume with a light. So if anyone looks at him, the light shines on them, blinds them, and now they can't see anything. Well, now, you're just get thinking, away. now you're just thinking like a haunt actor. Well, I'm just thinking like, so how Scooby-Doo would, would have gone through. No, that's okay? true. But yes, no, I'm not thinking like a boo, okay? All right, what do you got for me? So I have probably one of the hardest topics i have researched to this day it is the oklahoma girl scout murders no i know this story you know this story okay okay so the girl scout murders happened at camp scott in oklahoma just about an hour west of tulsa happened on june 13th 1977 a little backstory of the camp the land was bought and the camp was opened in 1928 by the girl scout organization and anyone who goes there that says it's one of the most beautiful campgrounds in Oklahoma. And it's nice that it's just literally a step away from the hustle and bustle of Tulsa. Uh, it sits on about 410 acres and densely wooded. And anyone who has gone to Camp Scott, once you turn off Highway 82, the road narrows down, which they call the Cookie Trail. And the wilderness just comes alive with the color, just the greenery, the animals, everything. That honestly just breaks my heart, knowing what happens, how mm. the fact that it's called the cookie trail, how fucking cute. Right. And that it just almost brings you to this magical forest. Right. I mean, this is a this is a two week in the summer getaway for these girls. And unfortunately, this is this is not a happy time. No. Um, but the girl, the Girl Scouts have been coming here for generations. Like I said, they opened up in uh, 1928. So the three girls we're following are Michelle Gousset, who is nine years old, Lori Farmer, who is eight years old, and Denise Milner, who is ten years old. The camp counselors we'll be following as well are Carla Willett and Michelle Hoffman. Both were in their mid-teens at this time, and they were both, uh, like I said, they were counselors. They were in Girl Scouts, but they became too old to be in the Girl Scouts. So Mm -hmm. this was Michelle Hoffman's first year for the camp as well. Michelle Hoffman's really excited to be a part of this finally. She loves Camp Scott. She loves being there with all the activities. She's so happy to help these these new Girl Scouts and just have a great experience. Uh, So two months before there, uh, the Girl Scouts are to arrive 
they do all their training, CPR, basic survival, go over camp schedules, food, and everything like that. So after one of these trainings, Michelle goes back to her tent and she finds that a lot of her belongings have been ransacked. And she noticed that her donut box that she had bought in that day was empty. She was looking for... She was Not the donuts! No, she was looking forward to those donuts. I would have been too! But when she opened up the donut box, there was a letter. And on the letter was wrote, We are on a mission to kill three girls in one tent. The okay, note was, I forgot about the note. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the, the, the note's like, it's kind of fucked up. Well, not kind of, it is. So once Michelle read the note, she took it to the camp director immediately. But the camp director dismissed it as a prank and threw the note away. But over these two months before... Angry. Hannah's real angry. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. And it honestly, just a fair warning, you're going to get more angry as the story continues. Yeah, it's a very dark story. It's it's a rough one. It's, yeah. So the two months leading up to the girls arriving, other camp counselors and other people who were there heard and noticed strange things happening around the uh, around the campgrounds. One counselor saw that a tent had been cut open and slashed open, like someone just took a knife and just slashed it. Other counselors had items go missing any time they had left their tent for long periods of time, whether it was to do any other trainings or go canoeing or anything that they were while they were there. Others heard strange noises off in the distance as well, and usually at night. Another counselor said that they noticed food going missing from the cafeteria as well. So... Fast forward, finally, the day has arrived. The girls are ready to go to camp. It is now June 12th, 1977. And Michelle uh, remembers driving to the Tulsa Girl Scouts headquarters and just seeing the parking lot jam-packed, full of parents and excited little girls to go to camp. Big Big old smiles on their face. During this time, during all the chaoticness, Michelle recalls seeing Denise Milner with her mom, and she can tell she was very nervous as Denise was the only African-American girl there. You could see how she could be nervous back in the late 70s. Yeah, absolutely. So Michelle decides to walk up to Denise uh, and her mother, her name was Betty, and to introduce herself as one of the camp counselors. Betty was saying to Michelle how Denise was feeling very homesick and didn't really want to go to camp. Michelle offered Denise that she come ride with her on the bus, and Denise was very hesitant. Betty told her daughter, if she is feeling unwell when she's at camp and she doesn't want to be there anymore, she will come right to Camp Scott and pick her up. But once on the bus and down the road, Denise was starting to sing camp song all the way to Camp Scott with the other girls. And once there, Michelle could see how how Denise wanted to be there now. It was nice that it was a little little trip like that and a little everyone camaraderie. And yeah, she, where everybody want... just kind of naturally comes together and... Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really fun. Yeah. So after unloading all their luggage and putting all their sleeping bags and all their belongings at their tents, Carla, who is one of the other camp counselors I mentioned earlier, saw Denise, and she actually helped introduce Denise to her new uh, tent mates, which were Lori and Michelle. Okay. None of them knew each other, but they seemed to bond very quick. Dinner time came around, and everyone was eating in the cafeteria, and once everyone was about done eating and early evening thunderstorm rolled in and it was darker than a usual thunderstorm for that area which is oh, by some accounts uh people were saying it was very very dark there 
One girl even wrote in her diary, it was the darkest dark I have ever known. I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or shut. I mean, that's dark. I've, I mean, I've seen some pretty dark, yeah. uh, some storms. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow. Like, I just imagine like that, that cloud pack that's got to be there to get mm-hmm. that dark. Yeah. But once the storm had passed and lightened up a bit, uh, Michelle and all the other camp counselors took the girls to their tents, told them all good night, and, it, uh, and told them how much fun they were going to be having the very next day. But around 1.30 a.m., Carla woke up to this strange sound that she's never heard before. She described it as a guttural moan. And several other campers and counselors heard the moan as well. So about a, roughly a half hour later, one camper was awoken to someone opening up the tent flaps with their flashlight. You could see the flashlight moving around and a lot of rustling going on. Um, didn't think too much of it. Maybe it was a, one, of the camp, one of the other campers that had to go to the bathroom or something. Now around 3 a.m., another camper heard a scream coming from where Denise, Michelle, and Lori's tent were. And they were way on the end. And at the same time, another camper heard someone crying out for their mother. But the campers who heard this were unsure of what to do, so they just went back to sleep. But oddly enough, interviews of the camp counselors, no one heard the cries. They only heard that guttural moan that they heard earlier in the early morning. So day breaks and Carla wakes up around 6 a.m. Everything is still very still from the storm and very damp. But Carla decides to head towards the showers to get an early morning shower in and get started with her day. As she's walking down the trail, she saw something near the bottom of a tree just off the trail a bit. She gets closer and she saw sleeping bags and she's like, weird, what are sleeping bags doing out here? Well, let's, she was going to grab them, hang them up so they could dry off and find out whose sleeping bags they were. But just a few, a few feet away, Carla looked over and saw a girl on the trail naked and she could tell she was dead. At this time, Carla ran for help. Carla got the camp director and the nurse and they went and they ran back to the scene as fast as they could. And at this time, Carla was trying to rationalize what had just happened. She thought to herself, this girl must have gotten so scared from the storm, ran, didn't see where she was going, hit her head on the tree and died. If only. <clears throat> if only. Which would still be tragic, but. When all three of them got back, Carla now realized what was going on and the horrible fear started to set in. The director and nurse saw the girl on the trail, and that's when Carla realized it was Denise Milner's bloodied up and beaten body. When the sleeping bags were open, they found Lori and Michelle stuffed into the bottom of their bags like someone had thrown them over their shoulder in the sleeping bag to carry them. Both Lori and Michelle were beaten and bloodied as well. The director called the police and did a head count of all the girls to make sure no one else was missing and to take them all to the cafeteria so the so they wouldn't see what had happened. Once police arrived, all the girls were to be sent home and back to their families, and the parents of the deceased were to be contacted. During the investigations, it was found that the girls were most likely killed in their tent, and all three girls were beaten to death. But investigators believe Carla was still alive and tried to escape when she was being carried. They do believe that Carla's death was strangulation, since there was a strangulation mark on her neck, and it looked like it was from a rope. Okay. Yeah, like wow. I said, it's a it's a tough one. Yeah. 
After the coroner arrived, he examined the girls at the crime scene, and it was found that all three had been sexually assaulted as well. It just gets worse. Like I said, I, I, I warned you guys, it does get worse. Now, at the crime scene, they found a large red flashlight that was on top one of the sleeping bags. It did have some bloodied fingerprints on it, but unfortunately, they were too smudged to get a good print off of. There was newspaper stuffed inside of the flashlight, what was odd, but it was found that it was to hide the rattle that the battery makes when it's inside the flashlight. The tents were covered in blood and had pools of blood on the floor, and they found a boot print of a size 9.5 shoe. After Men's doing... Men's or women's? It was a uh, male, a men's shoe. Okay. After they conducted their investigation of the crime scene, they decided to do a search of the entire 410-acre camp. It took them roughly a little over a week to go over every inch of that place. But during their their investigation, their search of the camp, they found duct tape, rope, and women's glasses all scattered around. But there's only, with the tape, there was only like a few rolls, probably 100 feet of rope or more, and there was just the one pair of women's glasses. On June 23rd, police found a cave near the campgrounds, and it looked like someone had been living there. They found a newspaper that matched the newspaper stuffed in the flashlight, and they also found scraps of food and some of the items that went missing from two months earlier. While searching the cave, police found a message that was etched into the side of the cave wall. And the message said, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. With a date next to it. 77617. So June 17, 1977. The murders occurred on June 13, 1977 which led investigators to believe that the killer was there the entire time up until the 17th of that month. And with that, I can't wait to continue this on next week's episode. Oh my God. (laughs) Lord. Okay. Wow. It's a lot. I felt like there's a lot more information when it goes on with the investigation and everything. Yeah. And I felt that it would be right to split it up that's fair that's totally fair and leave you with a little little cliffhanger yeah woof it i mean right away it's a lot it's heartbreaking it's it's very heartbreaking i mean these girls are going here for two weeks of fun and adventure I just keep on thinking about how little they are i mean yeah like they were i mean eight nine years old i mean yeah. they had their whole lives ahead of them they were innocent Mm-hmm. innocent little girls just going to summer camp and there was one who didn't even want to go to summer camp i'm sure her, her mom just feels terrible not that she should no you know i you, will say with this know that this was gonna happen but no but yeah there's this story is is one and i will say the case is still open to this day not to give anything away but, but it's, it's this case is still open yeah. It's very widely, the whole, you ask anyone in the state of Oklahoma, they know this case. All yeah. you have to say is Camp Scott, and they know exactly what happened. Like, mm. it's it's terrible, but at the same time, I can't wait to finish the story next week for everybody. It's terrible, but that's why we cover these stories, to tell these people's stories, to bring light to it. Absolutely, and many pe- I know many people have told this story, podcasters, there's been many docu. there is many documentaries on this particular case as well it's widely covered but at the same time 
it's just another outlet for a story like this to be told. Yeah. And that in like Hannah said, that's exactly what we're here for is to tell to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. Tell these the, stories. For the good, for the bad, for everything. Sometimes to honor these people who have yeah. suffered. So with that, um, I'll do... You're going to end us off with a fun fact to lighten the mood a little bit, Hannah? So it has to do with thunder. Great. Which I hate because of the thunderstorm in your story. <laughs> Why is there... What, every week, Hannah, there's something... There's something. There's just something that's like, you talk about something, I have a fact about something. A little synchronicity. There's a little synchronicity. So, thunder following a funeral means the person's soul has reached heaven. So, I guess it's not not a super dark one. Which makes me feel a lot better because there was a thunderstorm after my grandpa's funeral. There was, wasn't there? Mm -hmm. It was raining. We were standing in the rain during the burial. He knows how to do a good send-off. Mm-hmm. No, he sure does, especially considering he sent a hawk straight up my car right after we left, too. Oh, my God. I remember that Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, the panic looked on your face. It was it was right there. It, yeah, it almost landed on my car as I was driving my car. And I've never seen a hawk come that close to a vehicle. At least not personally. But So, mental note to do a story that's not so dark next week. Yes. Yeah, for... The Girl Scout Murders Part 2. Yeah, I'll try to find something a bit more lighthearted. I will say as well, uh, as of 2022, so just last year, more evidence came out. Ooh. So be looking forward to that yeah. on... on uh, next, next Monday. The next episode. I was going to say something else, but I can't. I'm just... I don't know. Like, like you can hear it. Like, you can hear it in our voices. Just the... It's, yeah, that it, one. It gets you. Like, i trying to... going to have it, to go play Ooblets and eat some ice cream to feel gonna, better after those. We're just going to have, yeah, we're going to have to decompress from this one a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that being said, all of you, make sure that you're taking care of yourselves. And absolutely. you're kind to yourselves as well as others. Just throwing that out there because this was a heavier episode. Um and there's probably going to be a lot of big feelings. I can think of a couple people off the top of my head that I know it's really going to hit hard for them when they hear it. So we love you all. and Absolutely. We love you all. We hope that you are all okay and you're healthy and happy and just taking care of yourselves. Well, thank you for joining us on Episode 6 of the Bleeding Grave Podcast. Until next time, stay fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. Wow, okay. I'm trying. Stay fresh, he says. <laughs> <laughs>